Hi everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington DC on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Hey everybody, it's Vanessa, and I am talking to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I am over my jet lag. We just got back from London where we did the last chapter of Goblet of Fire through the theme of love for our London live audience. We had a beautiful row of just Casper's family. It was amazing. So that's what you're gonna hear today. Instead of us recording it in the studio, we recorded it in front of a live audience. We had a very special guest, the Reverend Dr. Stephanie Paulsell. So same warnings as always with our live shows. You're going to hear some laughter that's been cued by visual things, so you might be confused as to why people find us quite so charming. Use your imaginations. You're going to hear some cuts into the studio for our ads, and you're going to hear a distinct lack of music. Ariana couldn't be with us, and so our music cues are gone, including there's like no 30-second recap sound effects. You're going to hear a sound effectless show. Anyway, we really hope that you enjoy it. It was so fun to do a live show in England. We'll be back in the studio next week to do a wrap-up of Goblet of Fire. Talk to you then. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Chapter 37. The beginning. When he looked back, even a month later, Harry found he had only scattered memories of the next few days. It was as though he had been through too much to take in any more. The recollections he did have were very painful. The worst, perhaps, was the meeting with the diggeries that took place the following morning. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, The The Light Show! Show. (laughs) Hello! (laughs) Remember when we met and we were like, one day we will definitely be on stage in front of hundreds of people in In London? London. We knew this was going to (laughs) happen. This isn't surreal at all. No, not at all. Hello, everyone. We're so glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. It's so nice when we do a live show because usually we're just sitting looking at each other and Ariana's telling us what to do differently next to us. And now she's not here. (laughs) (laughs) Ariana's on vacation uh, with her family and she's been texting me the last hour being like, is everything okay? And I just haven't responded. (laughs) It has been a long time since we started this. Yeah. Yes. Because, you know, we didn't start this as a podcast. We ran this as a little in-person group for about a year. And then at some point, Ariana... uh, Well, no, you're Vanessa. You're not Ariana. Vanessa turned to me and said, we're going to do a podcast. And I was like, oh, okay, great. And it was a really good idea. So thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) Um, We're also very, very glad um, because this evening we have the Reverend Dr. Stephanie Paulsell with us. Welcome, Stephanie. And... um, You'll hear more from Stephanie later, but really, without Stephanie, none of this would ever have happened. So it's a real treat to have you with us. Thank you. So, Vanessa, I believe it is your turn. It is my turn. To tell a story. Yes. Will you tell us a story? I would love to. So tonight, we are recording our um, the last chapter of book four, and we always end on the theme of love. And so we are going to be discussing the theme of love tonight. And I was thinking about you know, what story to tell. And the thing that just kept coming to mind is actually the most evil thing I've ever done in my life. I know it won't surprise you that I'm supposed to tell a story about love and I went dark. But I went to, in grad school, I went to um, Florida to visit my friend Dana, who was a nurse down there in rural Florida. And while I was down there, I got a horrible, horrible cough. And Dana is like a nurse with actual dying people. So whenever I was like, I think I'm dying, she was like, you're not, stop saying that. (laughs) And she just like was not taking my cough seriously. And I really did feel like my chest was like closing, you know, and I would communicate this to her and she was just having none of it. 
And then the last night I was there, I couldn't sleep. I was sitting up, coughing all night. And the following morning, she was like, I'm not going to lie. It sounds bad. Um, It sounds like you might have, like, decreased breath sounds. So, like, maybe let's look into going to the hospital. So we look, and I had insurance through my grad school, and so it would have been, like, $1,000 out of pocket, and then I would have had to change my flight. So we're talking, like, thousands of dollars for me to go to the doctor. I was like, am I going to die if I got on the plane? She was like, no, just fly home, land, go straight to the emergency room. I was like, great. So I get on the plane, and guys, I'm like coughing constantly, right? Like, it's disgusting. And so I turned, I was in a row of three, and I had the window seat, and there was an empty seat next to me, and then there was a woman here. And I turned to her, and I go, I am so sorry. I have this disgusting cough. I've spoken to a nurse. It's not contagious. That wasn't true. But I was like, I've spoken to a nurse. It's not contagious. And um, I'm just so sorry. It's like really gross and annoying. And she was so sweet. She was like, I'm sorry, you're sick. Like, don't worry about it, you know? Whole flight goes by and I'm just coughing. You know, I'm like trying to sleep, but I'm just coughing. There is a couple behind me and the whole trip, they're going, ugh, that's disgusting. Can you believe her? This is so gross. And I'm sitting there seething and I'm like, you don't know me. I could be on the way to, like, save dying children in Boston. I could be on my way to my mother's funeral. Like, you know nothing about me. Please do not judge me, right? And so the flight lands, and, like, my chest is hurting, and I'm getting, like, excited about the idea of going to the doctor and being treated. And, you know, there's that that extra level of hell of flying when you've landed and then you stand for a million years. So I stand up, and I had sort of forgotten about the people behind me because I was just so excited to get to the doctor. And then I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I turn, and this man, who I don't remember what he looked like or what he was wearing, but it was Donald Trump. This man (laughs) taps me on the shoulder and says, excuse me, young lady? I just want to tell you that you shouldn't fly when you are sick like that. It is a health hazard, and he starts lecturing me. And I'm telling you guys, a thought didn't go through my head. I looked at him, and I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. I overheard you on the flight, and I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to shame you. But I'm actually flying from Florida up to Boston for treatment for my tracheal cancer. And, (laughs) And I didn't want... And then, like, as the words came out of my mouth, that was my reaction in my head. I was like, oh, you did that. You did that. Didn't know that was in you. And now it's out in the world. And they just... (laughs) Let me confess my sins. Um, And they just look like ashen-faced, right? The woman goes, um good luck with your treatment. (laughs) And the man goes, I am so sorry. The woman next to me looks at me like I am a silent sufferer hero. Like, you beautiful child, you're so brave. And I'm just like, well, now you gotta double down on this, right? So I'm just like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. And I like, off my way off the plane and get into a cab and I immediately call my mom to confess, right? And, um, and my mom said something to me that a lot of people have said to me as I have confessed this story over the last several years, which is like, good for you. You actually taught him a valuable lesson. He didn't know. And I bought that for a long time. <laughs> but, so I think he was a jerk. But I also think I was a jerk. And I do think that there was a loving answer available to me. And I think it was this. I think it was something along the lines of, sir, I heard you, and I wasn't going to say anything. But you know as well as I do that it is nearly impossible to reschedule a flight. And you know as well as I do that it is nearly impossible to get health care when you are not in your home city. And so a little bit of compassion rather than judgment would have been really helpful to me. And I'm also sorry, because I know that that was disgusting. And right, it was the system. It was a system of capitalism and of all of these other forces that made us be so ugly to each other in this moment. And I was thinking about that in terms of Cedric's death. Because 
I mean, we, we blame Voldemort, right? Like Voldemort murdered a child. But there are systems at play that allowed this to happen. There are a lot of systems in play that allowed this to happen. And actually saying, this man is a bad man who tapped me on the shoulder and called me young lady, and Voldemort is a bad guy. I think both those things are true. I don't think old white men should tap young women on the shoulder and call them young lady. And, you know, newsflash, I don't think Voldemort should have killed Cedric. But if we are going to be loving toward each other in difficult moments, I think that in those moments, we also have to see what structures are at play that are intentionally trying to stop us from being loving. And so I'm excited to talk to you about the theme of what. Do you still want to be my friend? I was going to say, I have never heard that story before. <laughs> I actually intentionally didn't tell it to you in practice because I was like, he's going to tell me not to tell the story. <laughs> I love that you had it so quickly. Like, you could just, you know. Well, I had been seething the whole flight, yes. right? Like, the preparing. whole flight. And then I tell my best friend the story, and she's like, Vanessa, it would have been esophageal cancer, not tracheal cancer. <laughs> and I was like, that's not the feedback that I wanted right now. <laughs> anyway. But before we dig into that, there's a little something we need to do called the 30-second recap. <laughs> yes. Uh, for those of you not in the know, this is the epic kind of gladiator-style battle that we engage in every week, where we both have to uh, kind of capture the chapter in 30 seconds or less. You know, usually there's the kind of voting procedure, but now we have a live audience who can decide who the winner will be this evening. Um, so prepare your hands for some serious clapping. The clapping voting will happen after both of us have gone. Yes. So don't waste your claps after Casper goes. Right. Save them. Save them. Yeah, exactly. For Casper, like save your Casper claps. Um, shall I go first, Vanessa? Yes, absolutely. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. Okay, so Harry is like, like, oh my God, all these things have happened. And Dumbledore's like, nobody talk to him. Um, and so he just watches Hermione and Ron play chess and they go to Hagrid and Hagrid's like, I'm going to talk to you about it. And then um, it's all better and then there's a big feast and then like do what is right, not what is easy. And everyone stands for Cedric and then sits down for Harry when the toast is made, which is very awkward. And then um, they go on the train and... Um, Sorry, five th seconds. Harry shot first, Han Solo reference. Like, let's remember in the next book when when. Breaker retaliates. Uh, My point was not quite well made. <laughs> you did so well. Thank you. I'm so excited to hear your claps later. Thank you. Yes. yes. <laughs> All two of them. Um, <laughs> I think you did great. Thanks. God bless you for setting low standards. I know. Yeah. Are you ready? For I'm this ready. Thing? Three, two, one, go. So Hermione has reared a skeeter in a jar this whole time that I'm going to talk. Um, so Harry is like PTSD and Dumbledore is sort of protecting him and finals are over and they don't have defense against the dark arts anymore because man is that job cursed. Nobody take that job. <laughs> and um, they go down to Hagrid's hut and they have this like wonderful moment and then Dumbledore makes his big eulogy speech and you know and Cedric is dead and um, Harry has this beautiful moment with Mr. and Mrs. Diggory and um, they go back they go back and Molly Weasley is like I wish you could stay with me but you can't. He has to go home with the Dursleys. Nailed it. Okay, okay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, if you want Vanessa to take the home the crown, clap. I agree, I agree. We're not even gonna clap for me. We're just gonna give you the crown. I thought I was gonna clap for you. Oh, okay, all right. Okay, if you feel bad for Casper, <laughs> clap now. Sympathy goes a long way. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Vanessa, I give you the crown. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm the queen. Uh, no, I'm the queen. Um, <laughs> okay, so we discussed this very difficult chapter through the theme of love. This is one of the most famous like quotes and speeches, right, in the whole text is in this moment. And... Um, so I'm going to read it to you, right? So Cedric Diggory, this like young, amazing man, has just been murdered. And I can't even imagine what Dumbledore has to go through in this moment, except that a lot of schools in the United States have to go through this a lot right now. When young students die, um, the rest of the student body has to be addressed. And this is, this is how Dumbledore does it. These are the last sort of two paragraphs of his speech. Um, and it's in the Great Hall on the last night of school. He says, It is my belief, and never have I so hoped that I am mistaken, that we are all facing dark and difficult times. 
Some of you in this hall have already suffered directly at the hands of Lord Voldemort. Many of your families have been torn asunder. A week ago, a student was taken from our midst. Remember Cedric. Remember if the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy. Remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave because he strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort. Remember Cedric Diggory. So my question for you, Casper, is this is both a political speech and a personal speech. And I understand the instinct of wanting to make it political. You don't want Cedric's death to have been in vain. But I would also understand wanting it to just be about the boy in the context of the school, right? Like, take the politics to the ministry. And so I'm wondering if we see this speech as a loving act. And if so, what is Dumbledore loving in this speech? Ooh. Um, I mean, I, I think it is a loving act speech like it is such a it's such a memorable speech it's such a powerful speech and it makes me think you know the personal is political and I think of Cornel West's idea that justice is love in public because I think Dumbledore knows that the ministry is going to try and shut this down is trying to cover it up I mean the book starts with Bertha Jorkins's death being covered up right there, there's good reason to suspect that just like Voldemort says, kill the spare, the ministry is going to treat that in exact, this death in exactly the same way. It's insignificant. It's not worthy of investigation. It's too frightening to imagine what it might mean if we take it seriously. You know, he says, Voldemort is back. You, and, and some people will say that I shouldn't say that. Your parents may not agree. You know, the ministry will tell you it's not true. But I, I want you to know. And I, I think it's more than trying to honor Cedric's death. I think he's trying to warn the students. He's trying to... He's trying to love the students by protecting them. I see this as a real act of protection and truth-telling, even when it's painful to tell the truth. I, th I think he's embodying that idea of doing what is right instead of what is easy. Because this is a classic, you know, for those of you familiar with US politics, the idea that we shouldn't talk about a school shooting in the context of gun laws, for example. It's too soon, like we must respect the victims, don't politicize this tragedy. And yet by not engaging in those questions around you know, whether it's background checks or anything else, or frankly, banning assault weapons, that is political, right? By not engaging the question as well. So I, I think the love is expressed in the politics, if that makes sense. Yeah, I just, I often wonder what I say because certain people are in the room and then we'll imagine, what if Mr. and Mrs. Diggory were in the room? Mm -hmm. What would he have said? Would he have felt comfortable making the same speech if they had been in the room. I think now, because everything is recorded, we always act like anybody can overhear any conversation. Well, we should act that way. I'm, I don't think we always do. <laughs> but, like, should yeah. we? That's my question, because Dumbledore, this might be exactly what the kids need to hear, and if Mr. and Mrs. Diggory were in the room, maybe he wouldn't have made the same speech. I mean, this could be like my Jewish idea of grieving, but like you prioritize the person who's closest to the person who died. Mm. So I would be constantly worrying about his parents. Mm. Well, and we hear in the, opening in the opening lines that Harry meets with the Diggories, which is kind of the hardest moment. And that's the first, in some ways, the first people he meets as the body is brought back. He sees Amos um, and the unnamed Mrs. Diggory. And then again, he has the meeting with them first. So I feel like in some ways, even if they're not in the room, that permission has been granted, which seems like a, a loving act. Right. And the other thing that I do think is he's given it a week, right? Mm, yeah. it, this is a week later. He's not the night after Cedric has died. When Cho is in his office crying, he's not like, and let's make this about Voldemort. Right. Right. Like it's right. to the entire student body. Right. But yeah, I'm also, I'm sort of leaving with this question of like, should we act like everybody is always in the room? Well, let us live that question, Vanessa. Yes. As we dig into the text. Um, because one of the ways that we get to explore those questions is by taking a snippet of text. And um, by now, many of you will know the different spiritual practices we use to kind of find our way into a moment of text. And we're going to start with perhaps my favorite, Pardes. <laughs> 
I'm glad that they now know that that's a joke. Yeah. We feel it every time we say it. And then Ariana recently was like, you guys say that with every practice. <laughs> They're all so good. They're like, all so but good. This is our favorite. Um, okay, so I need your help picking a sentence. Um, because Casper and I are both traveling for many months right now, neither of us have our physical books. We have ebooks. Judge us all you want. <laughs> Who has their actual book with them? Excellent. Wonderful. Can somebody put their finger somewhere on a sentence? You here, sitting in a white flowered shirt. Yes. yes. And just put your finger somewhere randomly on a sentence and then share it with us. Uh, when everyone had once again resumed his seats, Dumbledore continued. The drivers of tournaments aim was to further and promote magical understanding. Oh my goodness, that is an amazing sentence and quite long. Let me read it with, <laughs> let me read it with the microphone. Can I take your book on stage? Is that all right? Thank, what was your names? Yvonne. Yvonne. Freddy. Thank you, Yvonne and Freddy. They are not plants. <laughs> that book is his now. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Um, He'll okay. give it back. I was kidding. All right. I'm just going to read it one more time. Thank you. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued... The Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. One more time. Yes, thank you. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued. The Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. So Pardis is, <laughs> Pardis is a four-step Jewish practice, and it, um, it's a medieval practice, and the word Pardis means orchard, and the idea is that you can put your hand up into an orchard and pull down a piece of fruit, and anything that you grab is going to be juicy. As you can see, we certainly grab something juicy. And the P for Pardes stands for Pshat. And Pshat, the question that we ask ourselves as we do this stage of this reading practice is, what is the intended meaning of the sentence? So Casper, do you mind just reading it one more time? Yeah, absolutely. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued, the Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. So what is the literal, what is the intended meaning? Yeah, so we're at this point where, where Cedric's name has just been toasted at the Great Feast. Um, and I believe Harry has just been toasted as well. And everyone stood when Cedric's name was said. And some of the Slytherins did not stand when Harry's name was said. Um, and he's now kind of turning to the broader audience beyond Hogwarts in that we have the Durmstrang students and the Beaubaton students. Um, and uh, yeah, he's kind of re pointing to the purpose of the whole Triwizard Tournament where these three schools came together. Great. Right. 50 points for Slytherin. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so step two of Pardes is the Rish, which is Remez. And Remez, what we ask ourselves to do is, what, it, what is the implied meaning of the text? What is the allegorical meaning of the text? But the way that we do this practice in Pardes, and that is a traditional way, is we pick one word out of the sentence and we trace how is this one word used throughout all seven books? And we're going to need your help for that. But Casper, what word should we do? Well, let me read it one more time, just so we all remember the words that we have. Mm -hmm. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued, the Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. There are a lot of juicy words. What word do you want? It's a hard one, but I want to go with resumed. Okay, did yeah. one come to mind? More like a descriptive than the actual word. Okay, is yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, <laughs> on behalf of all Jews, okay. yes. <laughs> that is okay. <laughs> I speak for us all. I was thinking of Ron and Ron resuming the fight in book seven, like that moment of stepping away, abandoning, betraying perhaps Hermione and Harry, and then resuming this quest. Um, that they have to, to defeat Voldemort when life is really, really hard for them in book seven. And so I'm just thinking about what it means to resume because there's, there's now this extra hurdle of like you've started and you've believed once before and then you failed in some way or something has interrupted it and you're stepping back into it knowing full well all the hard things about it. You know, sometimes you, you, when you're starting something new, you only see the good things. And then once you're in it, you know this much more difficult thing. And so in some ways, the resuming is even more inspiring than the initial beginning. Yeah. Um, so there's something in that that really struck me. Yeah, and every school year they resume school, right? A school year has a lot of 
resuming moments, right? Like, I think that that's one of the reasons that, like, graduating from college or university, as you people call it, um, is so... Because it's the actual language. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry that you oppressed us and we had to revolt. Um, So, the... Right, like the reason that graduating I think is so hard is because you're on this constant cyclical schedule when you're in school. It's like every 16 weeks you start and then if you hate something, it'll end in 16 weeks and then you get a fresh start again. And right, the school year has this like lovely ritualistic, you know, way of being. And then I remember when I graduated from college, I remember thinking the next thing I have to do is die. I don't have anything else to do. I have nothing. It was I was unemployed. And didn't what is know. it like in your brain? <laughs> so it's mostly like fun photos of puppies. Okay. And then there's death. Yeah. Just a looming specter. Yeah. Um, but like I think that there is yes. something so um, there's something difficult about resuming. Mm. But I also think that there's something comforting about it because it means you can mess up and you get to start again. Mm. I'm, I'm just thinking about that question of re-engaging with, with war, as you were saying. Um, we're in a friend's house. The Quakers are hosting us this evening. Thank you very much, Quakers. Very glad to be here. Um, do we have any Quakers in the house? Oh, excellent. Yes. Oh, they're supposed to be quiet. I know. <laughs> they, were, they were gentle raising of hands. But the Quakers have this amazing history in the nonviolent movements across time and I'm suddenly thinking about like what would nonviolent resistance look like in the Harry Potter books and we've got I mean we've got it in Harry who never mostly yeah <laughs> but he, he's always you know trying to disarm right that's the spell that's his spell of choice and that there's something I'm just suddenly seeing Harry as a Quaker that's basically what I wanted to say even as war is resumed right in that in that epic moment and um, I wanted to read through the sentence one more time and just to have us try and think of what we see now that we've had all of these echoes of this resuming from across the books um, come to us. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued, the Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. Yeah, I I am suddenly seeing him resuming and giving the second half of the speech as heroic right he could have ended it there he could have just said like you know we want to honor Cedric's memory we want to honor Harry who's gone through something and he could have sat down Mm -hmm. and instead he resumes and he he does he and I had never thought of this I thank you so much he he does what is right instead of what is easy Mm. what about you I'm just thinking about um just this quest of international or magical cooperation, which in this point is also international, or magical understanding is the actual language. I'm just thinking diplomacy is never done. In my younger days, and I have some friends here from the the youth climate movement when we were really engaged around the UN negotiations um, of climate change action, there were always these kind of political maneuvers and, you know, the Saudis this and the EU that and the Russians, the Americans, and this it's this never-ending, it's not a game, but it's this never-ending maneuvering, and now we've just had this G7 meeting, and is Russia going to rejoin? Like, diplomacy never ends, and so there's this even in the lowest moments, like the will to resume something that seems hopeless or that seems in that moment unchangeable. I'm just, I'm just seeing the, the dignity and the necessity of that. Like even in this moment where everything seems so bleak, he's asking to bring the schools together. So that's what I have. You're lovely. Well, you're lovely. Um, so time to move on. Yes. yes. Yeah. Enough of us adoring each other. Yeah. So step three of Pardes is drash. And the way that we do drash, drash is where you try to get to the meaning of the thing. And so we ask ourselves the question, if you were going to preach a sermon and this was your piece of liturgy for the week, what would the sermon be that you would preach on this sentence? Do so do you to... mind? Yeah, um, oh, sure. You want me to read it? Thank you. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued, the Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. First of all, don't call it Triwizard Tournament. Like, what a difficult name to say. Also, there were four wizards, so rename something once it's no longer true. (laughs) Right? Like, we're doing this with bathrooms. Like, once you know something isn't right, rename it. Like... It, it's not a Triwizard tournament. Sorry. Yeah. Also, 
maybe this this would be my sermon. Like, if you want to create cooperation, don't put a, like a ship and a magical horse carriage and a school just in separate places and never engage the students unless they're competing in like near death situations. <laughs> and it's only one of them. Like that, no one is talking to each other. Right? Only, only in highly escalated, intense situations like the Yule Ball, when people have to ask each other out and they can't pronounce each, other, pronounce each other's names. So I would bring in some, like, facilitative designing, like, yeah, that would be my son. <laughs> we can do better. <laughs> How about you? God, that's a good sermon. Every week, guys, we can do better. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, can you read it to me one yes, more time? Yes, I'm sorry. I lost it. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued, the Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. Sorry, and I'm just thinking that the next sentence should be like, it failed, <laughs> but... <laughs> um, I actually, you know, I'm gonna like become like not cheeky about that. Mm. I think it's really important to own your failures. Mm. And I think I, it, I would be interested in the sermon that continued and we failed. And this is why, and this is what we will do better next time. I do think the invitation at the end of his speech is amazing, right? And, you know, the drumstring students are getting tense, like, oh, we're about to be scolded. And instead they get invited, right? And I think that that is amazing. But I think you and I disagree about this to some extent. But I think it's important for leaders to say, I failed, right? Like, how did Dumbledore not see that Harry's name was just put in under our fourth school, right? Like, this was not crazy magic. Like, he missed the signs so many places. And I want Dumbledore to say, I failed you, and I will do better, and I'm sorry. Right. Failing doesn't mean you're a failure, right? Ooh. But, like, you need to admit when you fail. I love that. Failing doesn't make you a failure. Yes. I'm very wise. So good. Um, so good. <laughs> Should we move on to the sewed? Yes. So step four of this practice is sewed. And this is by far the most mystical practice that we engage in um, on the podcast. And sewed means secret. And so what we do is we just take a moment in silence and we see if a secret emerges to us. And Stephanie, who's the kindest person I know, I said publicly this week that I was like, I don't think ever like a real sewed has emerged to us. I think little ones do. And she was like, I think that's true. <laughs> she was like, I think that's right. But, and, and I think that's okay, yes. right? Like, um, neither of us have had an ecstatic mystical experience yet. But we're going to keep practicing and see what emerges. So Casper will read the sentence to us one more time. We'll all just take a couple seconds to think, and we'll see if a sode emerges. Yeah. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued... The Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. Has something emerged for you? I don't know if it's a sewed, but I saw something new. Mm. This is what's so cool about read. You know, it seems silly to read the same sentence like 800 times. Let me read it and really stress the words that I suddenly noticed. When everyone had once again resumed their seats, Dumbledore continued. The Triwizard Tournament's aim was to further and promote magical understanding. Like, all of this language is in there, and I hadn't even picked it up yet. And so I'm suddenly thinking, like, the secret is that I may see one word, like, I focused in on resumed, yet underneath there's this whole river that's, like, in the same direction as, as the point of the iceberg. That's a mixed metaphor if ever I heard one. But do you know what I mean? Like, there's so much that's underneath what we see that's working in that same direction. And I don't mean in like the gift way where it's just like, let me be a millionaire tomorrow and then I wake up a millionaire. But it's like, there's, there's something about not seeing the, full, the fullness of an intention until you sit with it and you read it, you know, eight, nine times. That was great. It's a mini-sode. Yes, it was lovely. Did you... And if it didn't, it didn't. Yes, if it didn't, it didn't. Um, I want things to be called by their proper name. I got tripped up again on the Triwizard mm. tournament. because. Well, first of all, Fleur is a witch, not a wizard. This is actually... We just went on a pilgrimage for a week, and um, this wonderful writer and poet and just amazing woman named Terry Tempest William was 
was on the pilgrimage with us. And um, we had these lovely people lead us for a day walk, and um, they w- were from a company called the School of the Wild. And Terry is a birder, and so she kept asking the guy from the School of the Wild, like, oh, what's that bird? And he didn't know, and he said, Terry, I'm sorry, but I'm not a birder. And she said to him, you really shouldn't call your school the School of the Wild if you don't know the names of the things. Mm-hmm. Then in order to be in the wild, you have to know what things are called. And I just think there's such wisdom in that, right? Because we're more than our names, but you can't, your student isn't gonna feel loved if you don't know their name, right? If you're not calling them what they want to be called or what they are called. I guess the so to me is, I mean, I feel called to call things by their name and know more facts. Um, And then you can let them go. But I do wish he had started calling it you know, the international student competition, right? Like just something truer. That's a great point, Natalie. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. (laughs) This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's Electric Toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth healthy and sparkling clean. The mirror mount for your Quip toothbrush puts brushing front and center in your bathroom, so you'll remember to bookend the day using your new brush. The built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides and help you clean your whole mouth makes sure that you brush for the entire two minutes. The multi-use cover is amazing, it works as a stand, and also helps with sanitary reasons. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. A friendly reminder as to when it's time to refresh and stay committed to your oral health. Please, this is a public service announcement from somebody who has all of her teeth and who loves a lot of people who have recently lost one tooth. Brush your teeth. Quip makes it easy and fun to brush your teeth, and that is why I love Quip and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Harry Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Harry Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, And I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Here at Harry Potter and Sacred Text, we actually got to put together our own floor sample set filled with our favorite scents. So if you're not sure where to start, make sure that you check that out. And definitely try to smell like my brother and sister-in-law's fig tree with the Hanami scent. Then when I meet you, I'll love you more because you'll smell like home. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. So we're going to invite up the Reverend Dr. Stephanie Paulsell to come up and tell a story. Stephanie told me to make her um, her bio as short as I can, so I will just say this. Um, she is my, my favorite person in the world, and she's perfect, and if you disagree, I will fight you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Stephanie, please come up. Aren't they wonderful? They are wonderful. They are the ideal students who they hear some random thing you say in class and they make this whole uh, amazing thing out of it. Um, It's great to see you all. Great to be here. Vanessa and I just spent a week with 
podcast listeners um, walking in the footsteps of Virginia Woolf together. Um, so we're, we're stretching our obsessions to include more writers. Um, so I'm supposed to tell a story about love in three minutes. So here it is. Um, 33 years ago, I fell in love. I fell in love really hard. Um, I was 22 years old, and I'd lived in North Carolina in the southern part of the United States, for those of you who aren't familiar with our geography, um, my whole life. And I was moving to Chicago. I moved to Chicago to go to graduate school. Um, and so my world was just opening up. And my first day in Chicago, I met this guy. He was tall and skinny and redheaded and funny and as smart as Hermione. And he was also a really good basketball player. He walked, as one of our friends said, like someone who's looking for the basket all the time. Um, he was also such a mystery to me. Um, we lived in the same house with a bunch of other students, and he would, we would all have supper together, and then he would go to bed, and he would get up at one or two in the morning, and he would write these incredible papers, and I'd never met anyone like this. I'd certainly never met anyone my age who was devoted uh, to his work in this way. Um, so I, I fell in love with him. The first afternoon I met him, which was the day I moved into this house with my suitcases, I met him in a library, and my heart just went out. It just felt like it went out of my body to him. Um, he didn't notice that for a while, <laughs> but eventually. Um, and one year later, I found myself standing in the back of a church in a long white cotton dress, looking down the aisle at, at him. So this was very much a do-it-yourself kind of wedding. I found my wedding dress, my mother uh, who lived in Lexington, Kentucky, went around to sale racks and bridal shops and tried on dresses and took Polaroids of herself, and I chose from that. And, and my Kevin wore an old blue suit that he'd had forever. So I looked down at the other end of the church at this skinny guy in his old blue suit, and for the first time in my life, and I was 23 years old, and many people who are 23 years old have already figured this out, but I had not. I truly had not, and I know I hadn't because it hit me like a thunderbolt. I looked down that aisle at him, and I thought, I am going to die one day. This is just a crazy thing to be doing. I'm, I'm about to walk to the other end of this church and say that I'm going to accompany this man to the end of our lives, which means our lives are going to end. Um, on our pilgrimage this week, Terry Tempest Williams shared a quote from Hemingway, love, it always ends badly. <laughs> um, but it was, um, it was a revelation to me, and I was so shocked by it that I kind of charged, started charging down the aisle, and my mother, who was walking me down the aisle, had to whisper, slow down. <laughs> But I think, you know, that is what love does. They say love is blind, and certainly love can show you things that aren't there and make you not see things that are there. That is true. But love also confers a vision, not just of the other person, but of the world and of yourself and of your life. And I think that these practices that Vanessa and Casper have been teaching us on the podcast um, are practices, Pardes and Lexio Divina and Havruta, they were all created because of this. Um, because if you can get close to something that you love, things crack open, as already we've seen tonight. Um, a lot of these practices were developed because some things in the Bible just were so confusing. And if, you know, if things didn't make sense, interpreters didn't want to say there was something wrong with the Bible. They, they said instead, we obviously haven't gone deep enough yet, so let's keep going deeper. Um, and one of, the, one of the mysteries in the Bible that these practices developed to, to work with is, why is there a little book of erotic poetry in the middle of the Bible that never mentions God? Um, the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. Um, why is this love poem in the middle of the Bible? Um, and so 
people lowered their ladders of Lexio Divina and Pardes and paired up in Havruta and argued about it all day um, to try to figure that out. And, and as they did, as they got deeper and deeper into this love poem, more and more meanings started unfolding. And they were meanings related to the life and the death of it, the deepest questions that we have. Um, one of the resources that I don't, I don't know if you all have talked about this in the podcast, you may have, it's not really a practice, it's more a, an interpretive key, but the great African theologian, Augustine of Hippo, his interpretive key to the Bible was, if you've got a passage, like the sentence we just read from Harry Potter, and you've got two interpretations or four interpretations or ten interpretations, if they all build up love, if they all build up for Augustine, the love of God and the love of neighbor, if it makes more love, then you can't say any of them are false. So I think, you know, this is what Casper and Vanessa are helping us see. Getting close to something we love, looking at it down the aisle, it helps us ask better these questions of who are we and what are we doing here and what do we owe each other. My sewed, can I just say? The thing I focused on was magical understanding because when I first read that, actually when I read the chapter this afternoon when I read it, I thought at first I thought it meant that we would understand magic better. Um, magical understanding. But after I read it again and now we've gone through it, I see what it meant was magical understanding among the different schools and the different cultures and the wizarding world. But I think um, to stick with our theme of love that deepening our, our magical understanding of each other, deepening our relationships, deepening our love, deepening our interpretations, does lead to understanding magic better. Gregory the Great, whom we all read together back when they were my best students ever, used to say, love is knowledge. Love is a kind of knowledge. Love is one of the ways we come to know the world. So thank you. It's so fun to be here. Thank you very much. Stephanie, as you were talking, I was thinking so much about where many of these, especially the Christian practices, come from, Lectio Divina, um, and we'll do Florilegia just a little later. They were monastic practices, and um, so these were monks who were supposedly and mostly, I think, celibate, um, people who had chosen to direct their love, at least in a physical way, not to another person, but the, the, the promise they had made was to love God, to take God as a marital partner, nearly. Um, and I was, this is something I now get to say, I was talking with a monk last week. Um, we had coffee, it was really nice. And I kind of asked him, I was like, so what does that mean to make a vow of celibacy? And he talked about how by focusing his love in his language on God, it allowed a different kind of love for other people. And I'm just suddenly thinking that all the teachers at Hogwarts, as far as we know, do not have a partner. At least we never meet those partners. And so I'm suddenly thinking of Hogwarts as a sort of monastic community, a scholarly monastic community, but where these characters are also practicing love, perhaps not in a partnership, but certainly with this bigger goal of, of whether it's magical understanding or whether it's knowledge or whether it's justice and, and to share that with the students. And so there's a, I don't know, there's a purity in it, which just, it really strikes me. It just hit me as you were speaking. Well, I think, you know, the erotic doesn't go away. Well, there you go. It just gets, you know, I mean, I think it just gets channeled in different, different ways. I mean, I think, um, you know, the Song of Songs, this beautiful erotic poem in the Bible, um, a lot of mystical writers latched onto that poem. Um, and maybe they, you know, some people say, well, they did because they're trying to explain it away, which you can see why you would argue that. But maybe they latched onto it because they recognized something about their relationship with God in that poem. Like, I'm longing for God, but I can't see God, or I'm, I keep missing these meetings, or, you know, my body is involved in this. I'm, I'm longing with my body. I don't have anything to add. I would just say, like, I don't think anyone's going to fight me. I feel like we all agree <laughs> that you're perfect. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so Thank much, you. Stephanie. <laughs> 
So, as we said, Florilegia is our second spiritual practice of the evening. And again, we're going to take a little piece of text, but this time we're both going to take a separate piece of text and put those two in conversation. This is a Christian monastic practice, which traditionally came from when people were reading, especially the Psalms, and there might be in a daily reading of the Psalms, one particular line that really stood out, a sparklet, as you, as you can imagine, uh, something that sparkled off the page, and then to put them, just like you might in a quote book, put them together and then see how they inform each other. Um, and so Vanessa and I have both chosen a little line from the text, which, Vanessa, are you going to type them up? Is I am. that right? Okay. And then they will appear. Do you want to go first or shall I? Um, can you go first and I will type it. Absolutely. So mine is from the nearly the very beginning. And in fact, I read it at the beginning. And it is as follows. The worst, perhaps, was the meeting with the diggeries that took place the following morning. The worst, perhaps, was the meeting with the diggeries that took place the following morning. Mine is, he strode out to meet them. Mm. And now I'll type that. He strode out to meet them. So, Vanessa, why did you choose that particular line? I, I, I'm coming to think of Hagrid. This is Hagrid. Um, um, the three kids go down. They don't have a defense against the dark arts teacher anymore, even though Mad-Eye Moody is on campus, but they're not, they don't have that class anymore. And so they go down to meet Hagrid. And, um, and he comes out to meet them. And I, I just think it's a beautiful gesture, right? Uh, just earlier in the book, we've seen the kids pounding on the door sort of until their hands like nearly bloody. Um, and now there, there's been a transformation within Hagrid. I, and I think it's because he's in love. Also, just because he's feeling good, he is capable of meeting them. And so, yeah, I just I love that Hagrid is happy. And I think that that is the right sort of ministerial instinct to go out and meet them and greet them. What about you? The worst, perhaps, was the meeting with the Diggories, which took place the following morning. Uh, I just think it's so sad. You know, these are the parents of Cedric who have, who's died. And so to come so close to suffering and there's nothing that you can do about it. That's so hard. So we're going to try and put these next to each other in conversation and see what we can learn about the other from the one, if that makes sense. The worst part, perhaps, was the meeting with the Diggories, which took place the following morning. He strode out to meet them. I mean, it sounds like they belong together yeah. and we did not coordinate that, right? It sounds like... Harry strode out yeah. to meet the Diggories, which I think calls attention to how brave Harry is for walking into this meeting. I think, I'm guessing Dumbledore arranges it, and I think that Dumbledore did the right thing by arranging it. This is the, the witness to what happened to their son. It's the young man who brought their son back. Um, Mrs. Diggory has all these really important questions, like, okay, so he didn't suffer, right? Like, she's trying to make meaning of it. But God, this must be hard for Harry. And I think that he does it with a kind of grace that he strides out to meet them, right? He answers their questions um, and doesn't make it about his trauma. Yeah. And, and they're also sensitive. Like, they don't ask invasive questions about his experience. It's really focused on Cedric. So there's a, there's a gentleness in their questioning even, which is lovely. What do you see by putting them next to each other? Can you read it for me? Yes. The worst, perhaps, was the meeting with the Diggories, which took place the following morning. He strode out to meet them. I'm seeing that it's not Harry who's striding out, but it's Amos. You know, we've met him at the beginning of the book as this kind of, like, extra proud dad who's like, Harry, you're useless. It's all about my son, Cedric. Um, and so I'm suddenly you know, that contrast of this moment where he's, he's completely, of course, defeated and, and in grief. Um, but, I, like, what, what if it's Amos who's walking out to meet him? And, I don't know, there's, there's something um, both sad and powerful in that image of this, of this man who's lost the thing that he's most proud of, but that he's still going to engage Harry in this really direct way and it seems gentle way like there's none of the meanness which we see in Amos at the, in the beginning of the book like there's I think there's just only grief um so I'm just I'm seeing Amos differently through that connection yeah yeah 
So um, let's see what happens to our Florilegium when we put them in a different order. So it would be, he strode out to meet them. The worst, perhaps, was the meeting with the Diggories, which took place the following morning. So what occurred to me with that is that Harry is like striding out to meet them being sort of everyone, right? Um, he now has to be the messenger of like Voldemort is back. And they do sort of, right, like torment the messenger. Um, the paper does. And, but he's, he strides out to, you know, he strides out. And then he, I think the other thing that this order reminds me of, he just has this Herculean task in front of him of being the person who witnessed this. And he, the way that it's, it is here, it's like he just starts doing things one at a time. Um, whenever I get overwhelmed by everything I have to do, Ariana says to me, bird by bird, right? Like you just do it one thing at a time, um, even when it's the very difficult task of trying to describe a bird, right? If you don't know the name of the buds, like you shouldn't say bird. <laughs> I love you. Should we ask for, for one more sparklet? Does someone who has a book, is there a, a sentence which maybe stood out at you uh, that sparkled? Yes, over here with blonde hair. What would come would come. Ooh. Should we read it all together, Vanessa, and see if there's something new? He strode out to meet them. The worst, perhaps, was the meeting with the diggeries, which took place the following morning. What would come would come. Just like works as a paragraph. <laughs> and it's better than the original. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um... I, I mean, right, what this speaks to me of is like this too shall pass, right? Which I think I've said this on the podcast before, but it is one of the platitudes that like really does something for me. And I think my, I think my favorite part about getting older is that I have more evidence in my life that that's true, that the hard times pass and that, we, that I come out of it and I'm okay. People forgive me. Like, all of those things. I think that's the best part about getting older. And so the what would come would come, I think, is, a, you know, if, if Harry strides out to meet all of this and has to go one at a time and first meet with the Diggories, you know, and what will come will come. I'm also just suddenly seeing book seven, him striding out into the forest and what would come would come. For those of you who don't know what happens in book seven... <laughs> for Liz on the pilgrimage <laughs> and I was completely like non-repentant she was like you just ruined the whole Harry Potter series for me and I was like that's on you it's you've, been 20 years Liz it's yeah. been 20 years I'm like you've made a series of bad choices and it's not my job not my job thank you so much Vanessa thank, thank you very you. much for that lovely sentence as well that is Florilegia aren't these fabulous like these are hundreds of years old I just love it well, it has come towards the end of our show, ladies and gentlemen, and I know, I know. And it is time, just as in every episode, we bless someone on the pages of the chapter for us to bless someone from this chapter. And um, I love to think of a blessing as kind of recognizing the inner priestliness of the human heart, as John O'Donohue would say, that there's something that is holy and, and beyond um, any harm that can come to us, something that's just innately good, and to call that forth with a blessing. So I want to offer my blessing to Victor Crumb in this chapter. Um, he has this beautiful moment where, you know, he seeks out Hermione. And we also learn that Karkaroff, although he's the headmaster of Durmstrang, was not involved in the steering or the sailing of the ship in any way. And Crumb is like, we did all the work, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we don't need him. Um, and there's just something, that invisible labor that Crumb has been doing, the... the not only the steering of the ship, but also the carrying of the dreams of this whole school and the, you know, the way in which he has been extremely careful and judicious about navigating this love or at least this you know, longing that he has for Hermione. I just feel like we never really get to lift up Victor in his goodness. And so I want to do that. So blessing for Victor Crumb. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Vanessa? I would like to bless the unnamed uh, Mrs. Diggory. Mm. I think that everything she says in this chapter is actually very beautiful. She's right. She's worried about what I think I would be obsessed about too, which is whether or not he suffered, like whether Cedric was scared, right? 
when she's taking care of Amos, she's like, it's going to matter to Amos about the, um, that he just won the cup. So he's like, sweetie, he just won the cup. So, he, you know, he was happy about that. But I really want to bless her for, for um, this moment. When they got to their feet, she looked down at Harry and said, you look after yourself now. I just think it's beautiful in so many ways. The fact that she is caring for somebody else in this moment, I think is like basically heroic. She's not like over promising, right? She's, she knows he has to look after himself. And I don't know why, but the now is incredibly meaningful to me. Um, Right, you've, I think what it is, it's, it sounds like gratitude. It sounds like what she's saying is, you've looked after us mm. for the last however long we've talked, and now you go look after yourself. Mm. Um, and so I just want to bless anyone who in moments of distress still find the strength to be kind. All right, Davis, hit it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's our show, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone who is here. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to hang out over here. You can come say hello after the show. There's also the lovely merch stand. Uh, If you want to get a T-shirt or a hat or some stickers, feel free and come and say hello. We'd love to meet you. Wow. Wow. We want to say huge thanks to Chris, Teresa, Lee, Davis, and everyone here at the Lyft venue. To the wonderful Stephanie Porcel. To Julia Argy, to my family, for Ariana Nettleman, and most importantly, all of you for coming. Thank you so, so much. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this was Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, the live show. Thank you. I'm Joseph Fink, and I'd like to introduce you to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a podcast about the shifting line between artist and fan. When I was a child, reading the authors that I loved and listening to the music that I loved, The thing I got from that is that feeling of of being understood somehow, and that weird connection, where it's not the person, it's not the stranger, it's the thing they've made that opens this space for self-reflection. I only listen to The Mountain Goats. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.